Hi, I'm Alex. And I'm Brenda. Welcome to Conversational Counseling, where counseling and discipleship meet. Whatever thing we want to talk about, Jesus is going to take any of it and all of it, and he's going to embody it for us. Like he's the model, he's the thing to imitate, he, but he's also the, his life is the interpretation of all this stuff that matters. Well, Alex, we are so excited and honored and privileged to have our first celebrity guest on <laughs> to our podcast. Um, no, seriously, we are so excited to have Marty Solomon join us um, for this edition of our podcast. Marty's a theologian, and he's also the president and director of discipleship for um, Impact Campus Ministries. And um, I know him, um, as many other people do, as the creator and executive producer of the Bama podcast. I was introduced to Marty through my brother-in-law, who... Um, said, I listened to this guy and he is so amazing and is really bringing the scriptures to, to life in a whole new way after walking with Jesus a long time. And I think you should listen to him. And so I did. And not only was I impacted and do I consider Marty a mentor of mine now, but also my Israel, uh, my Israel tour rabbi, because I had <laughs> the uh, distinct privilege of going to Israel and being on his tour this past summer. And um, Marty, I just want you to know that I do bless God for you. Um, definitely being a part of your work. God has used you to give me a greater love for the text. I've always loved the scriptures, but really and truly in this season of my life, it's just um, just bursting forth with so much joy about the text of scripture. And, um, and then just also, I think, just a greater uh, understanding of who God is, the goodness of God. I love the way you talk about the goodness of God. And, um, and also just what Christ has done for me and the preeminence of Christ in this whole story and in everything we do. So we just want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast um, today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for letting me be here. Those were very kind words. I can remember being in your shoes, having my own teachers, going on my own first Israel tour, and I know how that deeply shaped and impacted me. So if that's come full circle in any way, and now I'm, that's just beautiful. So that's wonderful. Mm. I, I remember what it means to say those things that you just shared. So thank you. Yes, of mm. course. Well, I was so impacted by the trip that when we got back, I immediately came back and said, we need to change our logo because I discovered something in Israel that I didn't know, and it fits with our ministry. And that's this idea of the Tamarisk tree. And I thought maybe instead of me explaining what it is, we've got you, the tour guide on the show. Can you tell us what the <laughs> significance of the Tamarisk tree is? And um, yeah, because it just really meant a lot to me, and I feel like it fits with our ministry really well. Yeah, one of the one of the more fun studies that I feel like we get to do uh, on the trip or in the podcast is look at the desert trees in the scriptures. Um, these different trees mean different things to the people and the land of the Bible. One of them is the tamarisk tree, and the tamarisk tree is a desert tree, it, but it's one that requires some cultivation. It requires some work, and it its shade it. If I understand it right, I'm no botanist, but if I understand it correctly, it takes salt out of the air and it enables it to emit more moisture in its shade. Its shade is about, you know, 15% cooler than just standard shade in the desert, which is beautiful. But the big the big rabbinical point that they make is that a tamarisk tree takes at least at least 40, more like 60 to 80 years to truly hit its its full maturity. So you don't ever plant a tamarisk tree for yourself. 
you plant a tamarisk tree and you're going to do the work of cultivating it for your future, for your kids and your grandkids. They are the ones that are going to sit in the shade of the tamarisk tree. You never plant a tamarisk tree for yourself. And so there's a rabbinical teaching out there of how many tamarisk trees did you plant today? How many things did you Mm. do today that have very little impact for you but are going to have more eternal rings? And there's this obscure little verse in Genesis where we're told that Abraham goes, and I believe it shows up right after he buries Sarah, or right before he buries Sarah, but somewhere in Genesis, and he shows up and it says he plants a tamarisk tree. And it's just this random verse, you read over it, but what you don't pick up is that he's making a statement about what he believes about what God's going to do with his promise. Because if he's going to the, the work of planting a tamarisk tree, he's saying, I'm going to be here for, my kids are going to be here. My grandkids are going to be here. And it's just a beautiful, one of the most beautiful, obscure verses in in Torah. Mm. Yeah. And I just think for our ministry, we're so about, you know, um, highlighting God's covenant faithfulness, which is the representation of this tree but also the way God provides shade for us in the desert and then the way we want to turn around and be shade. And I love the fact that it, it is, there's more shade in the Tamarisk tree because I think there's a lot of shade out there, but because we have uh, the scriptures and the Holy spirit and the community of Christ, we just have an opportunity to really provide the best and most shade for people. Mm. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love that. So be looking for a new logo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my introduction to Marty, I think, came through you, Brenda. And I was thinking this morning that for the first um, several weeks that I listened to Marty, I quoted him so often that I began to call him my rabbi, and everyone um, <laughs> rolled their eyes and laughed at me. <laughs> but I have to tell you, Marty, that the um, the most straight up from your, I think, your first episode of your first season— you talk about the God who says enough. Is that is that your first episode? Uh, the God who says enough is episode two. Yeah. Two? Okay. Yep. yep. <laughs> and I was really wrestling with the Lord about rest. And um, it it is the first time it settled into my being of God created us for rest before the fall. And that the rhythm of creation was centered around rest. And it was like, it was almost like, okay, Lord, I'm going to yield. (laughs) Like, I am going to lean in to what you tell me I need and who you created me to be. I'm finite, I'm frail, and I'm fragile, and I am going to learn rest. And so that that really did come from your podcast. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. It it really was a, a very large theme in my own learning and where where I felt like I mean, it was other teachers that taught me that. It's like, well, if the story starts here, mm-hmm. this is an aside. And this kind of helps us understand why in the Jewish story, they're so obsessed with Sabbath. So much mm-hmm. so that they almost over-obsess. And Jesus is almost critiquing their obsession with the the application of... But but what we miss is we just write off Sabbath and we completely miss that we overcorrect and miss Sabbath altogether. The reason they're so obsessed with it is this is where the story begins. This is Genesis 1. It's Genesis 2 and 3. Like the story's trying to insist that if you don't have a, a, a fundamental trust in the goodness of creation and your place within it, mm-hmm. uh, you're just going to keep you're going to keep operating out of insecurity and fear. 
And that's just going to keep leading to unbelievably destructive things in your life and the lives of everybody around you. And uh, it's pretty, pretty central. Yep. Yep. It's a, it is a hard and good. It's been a hard and good for me to, to lean into rest. Yeah. So, so much of what we talk about here on our podcast, Marty, is equipping people to um, one another. We want to give people tools. We want to give people frameworks for how to engage just in everyday life on life, personal ministry. And, and then so much what you do is an intersection with um, how to um, see the way that Jesus did this, how to um, look at the text and ask questions, but also to connect to what Jesus did in his everyday ministry. What do you, this kind of feels like a vague question, but what do you see the intersection of Jesus's personal ministry and our everyday personal ministry? Well, Jesus ultimately is going to take everything that matters, whether it's the Bible itself, the truth of the Bible, what what God desires for us, the kingdom, whatever thing we want to talk about. Jesus is going to take any of it and all of it, and he's going to embody it for us. Like there's no better, like he's the model, he's the thing to imitate, He, but he's also the, his life is the interpretation of all this stuff that matters. So when I can, when I'm trying to wrestle with what does it, what does God really desire for me, and what does it look like lived out in flesh? Jesus is the answer to that. Like the life of Jesus is the answer to that. The teachings of Jesus, and that's why some of this other stuff matters. When we talk about Eastern versus Western perspectives, and you know, they, they bringing a more complete understanding of the world of Jesus. Because if Jesus is my ultimate model, if he's the absolute incarnation of all the stuff we're looking for, Colossians is going to say, everything in heaven and on earth is held together. It's all held together in Christ. It was made through Christ. It was made for Christ. If he's that central, then understanding his rabbinical lessons, understanding his assumptions that he brings, that his audience um, Mm -hmm. is, when his audience is making assumptions, understanding that conversation between Jesus and his disciples, between Jesus and and his audience is really key to me getting Jesus right, which is of paramount of importance if he's if he's the if he's the incarnation of everything that I'm looking for, if he's the model and and the goal and everything that you know embodies what I want to be in my own ministry, I just want to be able to understand what he's saying accurately. And for me, that's really been key in um, listening to your podcast and traveling with you is I don't think as long as I've been a Christian, and even though I know Jesus, you know, is a Jew, just the Jewishness of the scriptures and really becoming to recognize, particularly the Old Testament, um, the sweetness of the Old Testament to understand the New Testament and to even understand Jesus himself and his ministry. And it just seems like that's really been lost. Um, in a lot of our conversation within evangelical circles or non-Jewish um, circles as well. Um, and I love, uh, yeah, just I think that what you're doing is, uh, I think in your book, which we'll talk more about, which I'm already reading, uh, just this idea of not that it's a different story, not that it's that it's any different than what I've learned. It's just expanding so much on what I've learned and giving um, my understanding more color and more depth and breadth. And that has been so exciting for me, maybe particularly because I have been studying the scriptures for a long time and just to see them come alive in a, in a fresh way. 
let's say it that way. So what, one of the things, Marty, I love is, um, you know, you talk about we really can't find our way if we don't understand the plot of the story. And I love the way you describe plot. And uh, I'd love for you to do that for our listeners. Like, what is the plot of the story and why is it so important to us, particularly when we think about this idea of having meaningful conversations, meeting people where they're hurting? Yeah. So, and this kind of goes back to the observation that Alex made just a moment ago, like where the story begins is probably one of the most important things about understanding the plot of the story. Like if you start the story too late, the plot of the story changes drastically. And, and so we, we do have this, this narrative, this arc, this plot of the story, and it begins in Genesis one with a good creation. And I, I heard, I had a teacher once that explained Christianity likes to kind of skip the first couple chapters and get right to the fall because that's where everything yes. kind of falls apart. Yes. And I had that's a teacher. That's our experience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you think about conversational counseling, like that, what, what could be more relevant? And I had a teacher once say, um, you know, when you start the story late, it's about the removal of sin. But if you start the story early, yes. it's about the restoration of shalom. Yes. If you start the story late, it's about what I'm not. But if you start the story early, it's about what I am. Um, if you start the story late, it's about, like, it becomes disembodied evacuation. Like, some glad morning when this life is or I'm going to get out of here. Mm. Um, but if you start the story early, it's about physical participation. Like, we're being invited to partner in something. Because the narrative arc of the story is that there's a good creation that has been torn asunder. It's been, there's something straight that's been made crooked. And God is God is in the work of making it straight again. That's what God is doing, and we're we're swept up. So there's this arc of God restoring this broken world, and for whatever reason, God is looking for partners in that pursuit. And I don't know why God is God just doesn't do it on His own in the back room. I think it's because there's something redemptive in getting us involved. It wasn't His mess; it's our mess. And I think even as parents, I think we have this understanding of this. Like, if our kids made a mess of something and we could just fix it, I don't think we as parents just snap our fingers and fix it. I think we bring the we bring our children into that process because mm -hmm. there's something about their own redemption wrapped up in the "Hey, let's go clean this up together." Mm -hmm. um, I could just make this go away, but you wouldn't actually be any more redeemed because of that. And so I, I've wondered if at times that's what God is up to in this restoration work. He's like, let me bring all of you along because this is actually how you get back to the garden um, to speak poetically. Like this is how we're going to get back is by taking you on the journey to get back there with me. And um, so those are some of the things about understand. Because if I see that redemptive work as the arc of the story, that just radically changes what I'm, the place that I find myself in that story as a partner with God, as somebody to contribute, um, all those things. I just love that. I love the way this ties together because I have described counseling in the past as knowing your story well and knowing where you fit in God's story. And that a good counselor is just someone who comes alongside someone and shows them how they fit in God's story by really first orienting to their own story. And I sometimes think in evangelical circles, we get a little uncomfortable with that. Like, what do you what do you mean you have to understand your story? Only God's story matters. But 
it does matter for us to know our story. It does matter for us to know where we started. It does matter for us to understand particularly how we were created, how the fall has affected us in the particular, because we can't really truly find our place in God's story if we don't understand our own story also. Yeah, I think we undervalue the relational component of this God relationship we have. I think we always mm-hmm. make God something, and and the the desire is beautiful. Like we're trying to make God something holy and other, and yet, and that's true. That's not wrong. Mm-hmm. But the scriptures also keep talking about God as a as a groom, and we're His bride, as a father, and we're His children. These are intimate relationships, and like when you think about those relationships in your own life, the uh, of course that other party matters. Of course, I want my. You know, the husband's not the only one. Like, he, the husband longs for the bride to know who she is and to thrive and to flourish and to have her place. We as parents, we long for our children. We would gladly step into the background, not because we want, we're want we in the background or because we're less important, but because that other person in the relationship is what we love. And so, of course, God desires that for us. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes we miss the really simple things. Because our theology makes us think that, you know, something else is required. But golly, this Mm -hmm. stuff is so beautiful. Not easy, Mm -hmm. just beautiful. Not easy, but simple, but not easy. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I wish I'd have had this teaching earlier. I I feel like I've spent most of my Christian life starting with Genesis 3 at the fall. (laughs) I think it would have changed the way I parented. And I remember one of the things Mm -hmm. that you said, Marty, is just that with every person— if I misquote you at some point, redirect me, but I believe this is what oh, I heard fix anyhow. It. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Um, but what I heard you say was that, you know, with every person you meet, you assume that God is working. And mm-hmm. I think that's so beautiful. I think it changes the way we approach people instead of, you know, and, and of course, sin is, you know, our ultimate problem. It separates us from God, but just to look at people and to encourage them And uh, my husband, last week, I had the opportunity to run into a young man. He was 23 years old, uh, probably homeless and um, presumably probably doing drugs. And he was weeping. And Paul stopped and had a conversation with him. And your teaching was so powerful. Paul said, I see. I see God in you. I see the image of God in you. You are are loved. (laughs) You know, God, God wants something better for you. And I just thought it was so beautiful. It was just such a practical outworking. I think of just that teaching that he could look on and see this this young man so broken and yet see that God God loves you and he's working and he's and he wants you to come to him. And um yeah, I just wish that I had known. I wish I had locked into that earlier in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, it's the intersection that Alex was talking about earlier cuz we I mean, who is it that models that for us so beautifully? It's, I mean, it's Jesus. It's Jesus yeah. seeing the leper. It's Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, looking for the outcast, embracing the untouchable. It's Jesus seeing the unclean woman with an issue of bleeding for 12 years. It's, I mean, these are, that's that's that intersection of, because there's part of us that's like, am I doing that right? Like, imagine a world without Jesus. And all these laws and prophets and scriptures and whatever, like, imagine trying to go, am I doing this right? Because there's laws that tell me not to touch the leper. But there's also laws that tell me to care for people. Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? The intersection of Jesus is yes, because he came and he was like, This, this is what it looks like. This find 
find the outcast, see the image of God in all people, realize that the least of these is actually me. Um, you know, uh, yes, 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 yes. That's yeah. the intersection that makes it all. So it brings clarity, brings some level of, at least, at least for Jesus followers, some level of certainty that this is indeed what the gospel looks like. Yeah. Well, I think just another um, way that I've liked hearing you um, express this idea of loving God and loving our neighbor and what it looks like is the ideas of righteousness and justice. Um, I think the way we tend to think about that are very different than how you teach what they really are. And I think it very much plays into what we're trying to encourage people to know for themselves and to um you know, talk to other people about and enter into their lives and their stories. So can you explain a little bit uh, about those concepts? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at, we'll start by just affirming like why these things are so important. We, we've talked about this, like this partnership with God. One of the first partners we run into in scripture is Abraham. It's in Genesis at chapter 18, Right, right around the story of the Sodom and Gomorrah. And God shows up, and one of the things that God says to himself about Abraham is, I've got to, I've got to discuss this with Abraham because, and he says, because. Why does he have to, why has he chosen Abraham? Why are they in this relationship? Why does he have to talk to him? Because he has made his life about righteousness and justice. That is what Abraham walks, and that's what he pursues. And that's why this relationship is so important to Jesus. Or the Psalms. That tell us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Like the, those are those are pretty big statements. So these ideas of righteousness and justice are a pretty big deal. Now I think we hear the term righteousness and we always think of like doing right things. Righteousness, well, that's right living, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily incorrect, but it is void of the original context because righteousness zedeka in the Hebrew refers to a, the state of being in right relationship. The word doesn't speak of things that we do. It speaks of, uh, it's a relational term. And it might not be a relationship between persons. It might be the relationship of, you know, again, something being straight. Um, righteousness speaks of straightness, um, of truth, of something being not crooked, but but straight and right and true. So the Jews talk about a triangle between God and us and and others. There are these relationships. Modern Judaism has made it a square where creation becomes. So there's God and creation and us and others. And all of these are relationships. So there's a relationship between me and God. There's a relationship between me and other people. There's a relationship between me and creation. And all these things, there's a right relationship that's intended. But this right relationship gets crooked, gets twisted, it gets broken. The relationship between me and God gets broken. The relationship between me and creation gets broken. The relationship between me and other people gets crooked and twisted. So then you have the work of justice, or what the Hebrew calls mishpat. And mishpat literally speaks of the place of judgment, the place of shafat, the place of making, declaring straightness. So when Whenever righteousness has been disrupted, justice makes it right again. So justice in the Hebrew mind is restorative because it's restoring zedekah. It's restoring right relationship. And so this is why righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. In this narrative arc we were just talking about, if God is restoring everything, it's because zedekah matters. 
And so he's about the work of Mishpat because Zedekah has been broken. Why does he partner with Abraham? Because because Abraham is pursuing Zedekah and Mishpat. He wants to have right relationships with God and with other people. And when those are and when those are disrupted, what does he do in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? He stands on the hillside and he pleads their case. He says, "You can't destroy them. You can't. What if there's what if there's forty? What if there's thirty? Twenty? Do I get ten? Like he just keeps bartering God down because he's like, we have to put the world together, not tear it apart. So this is who Abraham is, Zedekah and Mishpat. And and that's the foundation of God's throne and the foundation of the relationship that he calls us to and what we see modeled in Jesus's ministry as well. So Marty, the reason I love this so much is because it ties into the last three years I've spent studying um, with the Allender Center, I'm studying what's called narrative-focused trauma care. And Dan Allender, um, hit, you know, part of his entire paradigm of teaching is understanding the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And so when I hear you talk, it's just like everything is coming together. <laughs> because to partner with God in righteousness and justice means we have to reckon with the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Goodness, yeah. What a great resource, too, the Allender Center. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, if there are strangers, foreigners, orphans, widows, it means uh, there is, there's been a disruption in that beautiful wholeness, in that shalom. It means that something is out of whack. And so God does ask us, beg us, plead with us to, to watch out for those people so that we can be a part of that mishpat. I mean, it's just central to... And one of the things that I love about how that shows up in the story is the moment I remember the alien, the orphan, the widow, the moment I remember the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow, I then remember who I am and where I came from, which only causes me to notice those when you start to widen this gap between who I am and who they are, you know, mm-hmm. those people. See, what Paul did, sorry, uh, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say Paul's name, uh, what Brenda's husband did uh, <laughs> on the with, with that man the other day is he... He obliterated the gap between his humanity and this other man's humanity. He's because he saw something. See, the more you let that gap widen and widen, the more the the zedekah is broken, the more the injustice. But when you start to break down that gap, all you, all you are is reminded about what's most true about yourself, mm-hmm. and then you see the beautiful parts about yourself and all those people on the other side of the gap. So, this call to remember the marginalized, the oppressed, this call to remember the fatherless, um, the widow, the foreigner is really like this. Our, our own redemption and salvation gets wrapped up in it because yeah. it's it's this built-in reminder about who we are at our core as well. Yes, that, exactly. That's it. It is who we are at our core. And so what Dan Allender would say is you have to know your own widow orphan and stranger story because until you grieve those parts of you you cannot enter in with the widow orphan and the stranger in an authentic truly loving way you will further marginalize them you will exploit even other people because you're not reconciled to your own grief you can't minister to their grief this is one of the most repeated statements in Torah. Whenever God gives a whole list of commands, and he always ends it with, remember you were slaves in Egypt, that is why I command you to yeah. do this. He says it over and over and over and over again. 
Remember where you came from because this was your story. You have to have you have to have remembered that you have processed this. You've started here. Don't ever forget where you start because then you can help everybody else that's in that same place. So, I mean, that is so, and we always think of Leviticus as like this most barbaric, like law ridden, and yet it's full of these statements that are really grounded in what we would call like really healthy psychology, like stuff that we would teach. And and yet they're in this book from thousands of years ago and Absolutely. 100%. Love it. Yeah. I think you've just really, truly given us a theology of understanding our past right there. Mm -hmm. Because when Brenda and I started in biblical counseling, there really was a move away from understanding your past. All that mattered was now your personal righteousness and holiness, not even righteousness, your personal holiness in the now. And I had to begin to develop a theology for understanding my past. And that's what you just gave us. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. that beautiful both end. Like you can either dwell there or you can ignore it, but really na- being able to put it in its proper place in healthy ways is everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I just, I want to also go back to the story about Paul that was so just sweet to me, this whole idea of remembering, because of course, Paul was moved to compassion and he went on to help this young man in some ways at a cost to himself. But every time he's repeated the story and he's told me and told our children, he has just gotten so teary-eyed, right? And has just been so moved. And it's exactly what you're saying. I think there is such a sense of having compassion for the young man, but also seeing humanity and understanding his own neediness and um, and the love of God for him in Christ. Like, what has God done for me and um, in Christ? So that's that's yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, well, I... I've heard you talk about four vital pillars of the faith, and um, I thought this would be just a, I just love how you talk about all of these, and so I wanted to spend some time, um, because you clearly, the first one is the text, you have a love for the text, and um, in I'd love to hear in your words why the text is so vital for the faith. Yeah, um, you could probably talk about it a few different ways, but I think the reason why text, and I love to start there, is because <clears throat> text is where the power is going to lie. It's, it's what it's what's going to empower um, my relationship, my walk, my faith. Uh, like we would say the Holy Spirit, and I would totally agree with that. And, and I don't want to make the text like just Bible study. Like I'm talking about something far bigger than that. But it's Paul in Ephesians that says... Um, you know, make sure you take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So there is an intimate relationship between the word of God and how the Holy Spirit wants to work in us and through us. And so to make sure that we, I mean, one of the things that I learned in Israel years ago, and I hope I pass it on to you as well, Brenda, was these people knew their Bibles. Yes. Far more than, like, take the average Joe, and they would know their Bible more than the four of us put together here on this podcast. Like, they just, they had the Bible in them. They didn't have a Bible app. They didn't have 17 Bibles at their home. They didn't have a printing press. If they were going to have the Bible, they had to have it in them, literally, in their heart, in their mind, in their community. They had to have the Bible living and active in their midst. And and what that did was it, it set... so. So if God's word never returns void, which is Isaiah chapter 55, if if 
If my word goes, not my word, but God, God says in Isaiah, if my word goes forth from my mouth, it does not return to me empty. It always accomplishes the purpose and the desire for which I sent it. If that's true, then having God's word in us is going to be the thing that empowers. It turns the Holy Spirit loose to work mm-hmm. in our lives, to have the text come out of us, to send. And it will, it'll never be our power. It'll be God's power. But we'll have, we'll have, we'll have opened the doors for that to work because we've taken the time to get the text inside of us. So, yeah. Well, one of the things that happened as a result of Israel is Paul and my sister, my brother-in-law, and I were really challenged by you to start back with scripture memory. Um, And you said two things on that trip that were really powerful to me. One is, is it was enough to memorize it. I didn't have to continue to review all the verses because Uh I think over time, that's what I kind of stopped somewhere along the line going, it's hard enough for me to memorize, much less have to go back and do all the review. And you were yep. like, memorize it. It's the Holy Spirit's job to remind you of it. And yep. then you told me it was perfectly okay to memorize the NIV, by the way, which I was really happy <laughs> because that's, you know, that's the Bible I love. Um, but um, it, so it's, it was really sweet. Um, and we're still doing it. I think the holidays we kind of got off and now we've had some grandbabies come. We're trying to get back on track. But you've got these four people in their 50s and 60s sitting around a kitchen table doing our scripture memory for, for one another. And so I really thank you for that. I've just um, asked the team I work with to help me, uh, hold me accountable. We're going to start kind of a group scripture memory together to hold one another accountable. So thank you for that. I really appreciate, appreciate that. And I think uh, on our trip or on your podcast, uh, the word for meditate, this idea of haga, as you yep. like to say it, you say it very, yep. the text, uh, but just this idea of meditating uh, yep. on the text and really digesting it, ingesting it. Um, it's just been so good. And I, yeah. I just appreciate your influence there. And if we're going to trust the story, I think it's one of the things you say in episode one, it was one of the takeaways is trust the story. You can't trust a story you don't know. And you can't trust a person you don't know. And the story is about the person of Jesus. And that actually became something a lot of my friends and I would say as we would be talking about our problems, we'd be like, trust the story. <laughs> Are we trusting the story? And that just kind of became a way to encourage one another. And just a reminder, like there's a story here that can be trusted. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Uh, yeah. And, and did you want me to go through those other three pillars? Yeah. yeah. Real so let's quick? talk about radical community. Um, this is community is a big thing that Alex and I talk about. And in fact, we would say that as men and women come to us, one of the biggest issues we see is that people are isolated. They're not oh, in community. Even if oh, they're yeah. reading their Bibles and praying, they are not connected to authentic community. And we call, we call um, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the body of Christ our superpowers. Yep. And so you basically cut off one-third of your superpowers, and that is really key. So tell us what radical community means to you. Yeah. Uh, one of, so of these four pillars, the first one is text. The second one is that you can't do that in a vacuum. Like you have to do that in the midst of relationships. And the relationships that we see in the New Testament community aren't just friendships. They're not just, but these are, this is radical fellowship with people you don't agree with. That's what gave mm-hmm. the New Testament community its power. That's where their mm-hmm. gospel had teeth was because you had a person on two opposite ends of a sociopolitical spectrum or two different tribes and camps of paradigms how to see the world, and yet they were coming together to break bread, and this identity in Christ transcended these other tribal vocational identities. Uh, I mean, Paul says there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. I mean, this is all throughout Paul's writings. It's all throughout the gospel. It's Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17. If we have this radical fellowship 
amongst our amongst our diversity that's how the world is going to know that this is really truly god and i think so much so often we try to pursue uniformity rather than unity U- unity assumes diversity or it's not unity at all it's uniformity mm-hmm. and that's the antithesis of unity so unity is having this fellowship despite the diversity that um is amongst us and it transcends that. It maintains, it protects the diversity. It doesn't try to wipe it away or obliterate it. It actually honors the diversity and transcends it to make, uh, th- that's the that's the gospel-centered community. So when we say radical fellowship, that's, um, my earliest years, my students came out of my ministry thinking friendships. I need friendships, mm-hmm. which is true. Like loneliness just kills us, but like literally, but um, I was talking about something even beyond just friendships and intimate relationships, but radical fellowship with people that see the world differently than I do. Mm. The sharpening that needs to take place. Yeah. We love to live in our echo chambers for yeah. sure and be comfortable there. Well, yeah. what about your idea of discipleship? Because that's the third pillar. Yep. Discipleship was, and I've had the hardest time trying to apply discipleship in our world because I came out of my first trips and I was just like, I was a... I was a little overdone on this. I was a little overzealous. And there's space to be a little overzealous. But but what I saw in the rabbinical world was discipleship was an all-day, everyday, 24-7, 365 days a week. You dropped your nets and you left with Jesus. And you we don't know if they went home for the next three years. Like, they gave everything to follow a rabbi, to do everything that Jesus did. That was discipleship. Discipleship was not 7 a.m. at Starbucks on Thursday morning. Not that that's a bad thing. I wouldn't want us to stop meeting at Starbucks on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m., but that's what we always called discipleship growing up, and we would meet together, and we would tell each other to study their Bibles, and we would ask each other their prayer requests, which is beautiful. It's beautiful. Don't, I don't want to stop doing that, but discipleship was like, come follow me. Let's do life together. Let's eat together. Let's walk together. Let's travel together. And part of what I got into campus ministry was to do that. And I realized that that's where all the good stuff happened. Not in the lessons, not in the, but when we were walking on campus for 40 minutes every morning, that's where we talked about girlfriends and homework and career decisions. And and all of a sudden we were applying, that's where discipleship took place. And so I like to encourage us to think deeper and harder about what are those relationships that transcend one hour a week. What are the relationships where you are literally mentoring somebody saying, follow me as I follow Jesus? Is there anybody behind you? Because I promise you there are people behind you. There's always people in front of you, and there are always people behind you. So Mm -hmm. are you discipling anybody intentionally um, beyond just a weekly meeting? Uh, Do do we have relationships that that transcend that? So that's the discipleship idea. Mm -hmm. So good. Well, the final one has to do with wrestling, and this is one of my favorite ones that you talk about because I've gained a lot of freedom from you in this area in my own Christian walk. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's the thing that our modern Western world is going to bristle against and struggle with the most, which is really kind of the the essence that even drove me to write this book recently, but questions like wrestling, the gray, the complexity, the nuance— we have for almost a hundred years now in in Christianity, we have worked very, very hard to make sure our posture is a posture of certainty, like always be ready to explain everything, 
to prove everything, apologetics. There's a place for all of that, but it has done something to our posture, which is, I know, and I am right. And the problem is, is we all know how we don't know. We all know that we don't know. We all know that there are questions. We all know that there are, we, we wrestle with this stuff. We all, so it's all kind of a facade. And it was never the facade that God wanted us to, like, we, we somehow postured ourselves over the Bible so that we could use the Bible for our ends, our mm-hmm. theology. It's our proof text. The Bible was never intended to be our proof text. The Bible was always the thing that God wanted to use to shape us, to transform us, to provoke us, to whenever we open the book, God is using the book to do something to us. We are not using the book to do something to others. Mm-hmm. And that posture. So so I love the pillar of wrestling because it reminds me of where I sit in this hierarchy of transformation. I, I am just one other person that's being changed by the grace of God. I want to invite other people into that space. Um, but I don't want to get myself in the wrong spot on that pyramid. And so that's the wrestling pillar that I think. Yeah, Basically, I, it's, a pillar, really, it's a pillar of permission is what it really is. Yes, that mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that without it, Marty, uh, first of all, we don't know how to be postured to the text. And secondly, we will not engage in radical community or the kind of discipleship you're talking about if we don't have that permission. Because mm-hmm. when you believe you have to have all the answers before you can call someone to follow you, You never get there. You never arrive at the place where you feel like, I understand it now, I can pass it on. But when you give me permission to say, I can still be in the wrestle, and I can be in community where I'm continually being challenged, and I can call other people to um, watch my life, like, okay, like now there's hope. Like, I can can do that if I'm allowed to wrestle while I do it. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's a shame that that's not more um, shame, whatever. It, 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 well, it is, it, it mm-hmm. grieves me that that's not a more native posture and space for our communities of faith, but we yes. can get there. We can get there. Yeah. 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 I think we have, we have so, to get there <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to grow and to be humble. And, um, I think about so much in our ministry, a lot of times there are not a lot of black and whites. There's a lot of gray. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of wisdom calls. Mm-hmm. There's, you could argue this from this side. You could argue it from this side if you just want to proof text. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so there is a lot of wrestling. And I think, um, you know, a lot of what we want to do is encourage people to know that that wrestling uh, is a part of the lament, right, that we have with yeah. the Lord in our own hearts of wrestling with God ourselves and then going, walking along other people and giving them permission and that freedom to wrestle as well. Because uh, we see that throughout the scriptures, and we know that actually that wrestling, I, and I love in your book, um, you know, just you talk mm-hmm. about wrestling or doubting from a place of confidence, mm-hmm. and so it's an invitation yep. for deeper discovery and meaning and connection to the Lord. I think we tend to see it as the opposite. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorite parts of where the book starts. Um uh, I didn't intend on writing that opening chapter to that book. I, I sat down to write, and that's what ended up coming out. Um, mm. And I'm, and I really ended up loving what what Jesus did in that chapter because there is that paragraph where I, I talk about that. I feel like when we think of doubts, we always assume that doubts are coming from a place where people are like trying to tear down the faith, or and sometimes they are. 
But I think actually most of the time, a lot of us doubt because we actually do trust the Bible. We trust that the Bible is big enough, that we are the ones that don't see something, that there must be more that I'm simply not aware of. And that's where our doubts are coming from. And those are the doubts we got to keep chasing down because they're true. The Bible is big Mm -hmm. enough and there are things we don't know. And those are good doubts. Um, that doubts lead us to like a deeper, more robust faith. And yes. a- absolutely, 100%. Yes. Well, Marty, uh, tell us a little bit more about the book, because I I literally laughed when I read your title. <laughs> Asking Better Questions, A Guide for the Wounded, Wary, and Longing for More. And I laughed because... I think we could have written that book and it would have been a completely different book than what you wrote. It would have been from a, a, a personal ministry counseling yeah. perspective. But asking better questions is just such a hallmark of what we challenge people to do. I, I always tell people the first five years of counseling, I ask the Lord to make me a better question asker. But you're talking about different questions, I think. So tell us a little bit more about the book. Well, it'll be the same heart. I'm going to be coming at it from a hermeneutics perspective, from a biblical interpretation perspective, but it's the same idea. And it, it it's making sure that when we read the Bible, we're meeting the Bible on its own terms, mm-hmm. um, rather than forcing the Bible to meet us on our terms. And we do that theologically all the time. We have we have a pre we have a prescribed theological system, and we're then using the Bible to you know meet those demands. But when we learn to ask a better set of questions, I have a friend who used to say, his name's Aaron, and he used to say, um, when you ask questions the Bible isn't asking, you always get the wrong answers. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we make sure we're asking the questions the Bible is asking? And so the whole book is a journey through the biblical library. Like, let's look at wisdom literature. Let's look at the prophets. Look, let's look at the gospels. Each one of these portions of the biblical library are unique. And they're doing something unique. And so when we learn to, and this isn't like some, I don't need a seminary degree to do this. There Mm -hmm. is a lot. There's a lot. A lot of people have said it's like drinking from a fire hydrant in the book. But they're they're also not difficult and they don't require, it's just learning how to have a, a new conversation and ask those new questions. And then all of a sudden I'm meeting the Bible on its terms because I'm reading the gospel not for what I want the gospel to do, but I'm meeting the gospel with what Matthew was trying to do in his gospel. I'm reading Amos, the prophet Amos, on Amos's terms, making sure I'm hearing the question that Amos is asking and therefore wrestling with the right answer. Um, I'm, I'm reading Leviticus on Leviticus's terms. It's probably a horrible example to use, but you get the idea. Like <laughs> To meet the Bible on its terms, ask the questions it's asking, and uh, I do, a, a basic idea far more compli- or far more difficult than we might imagine, but it can be done. I promise. Cause I'm not, I'm really not that big of an expert. Like for all the celebrity talk, you guys opened up this podcast <laughs> with, I'm just, I'm just the Robin hood of theology, stealing from the theologically rich to give to the theologically poor. Cause you can't quote that. me in a paper. So if I can point people to all the folks that you can quote in a paper, we're in, we're in good shape. But I can quote you to a lot of people, and I have. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Well, let me just say that I got my copy last week. I'm already four chapters in. Um, Marty, it is incredibly accessible. You know, it's it's digestible to read. It is a lot, Mm -hmm. but it is it is simple. If I can say that, it's not 
Um, I'm reading it, not feeling like I have a headache at the end. I'm like, oh, that's so good. That's so good. That's so good. I'm, mm. I'm underlining every other page. I'm just, you know, got my little highlighter out and underlining. Um, Paul and I are sharing this book and he is not going to want to read it after I get done. He'll probably need to buy his own <laughs> copy. Um, oh, shucks. I, another copy? Darn. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, but I, I love you got so many rich analogies. And I have to say, you know, having studied the Bible and been through precepts and been in a tradition where there's a very high view of scripture and all of that, um, there has just been a lot for me to learn about the understanding of how to approach the scriptures. And um, and I think this book, um, coupled with your podcast, would really be like if somebody wants to be schooled here, get the book, listen to the podcast, because they're going to, um, I think, just get more of the practice. Because basically what you what you do in your podcast, you you use the tools of this book. Yes. And you're yep. using these tools to expound. And I think once you see how it's done, it's like, wow, that is powerful and so good. So, um, yeah, we really want to recommend that our listeners um, go to a streaming service and download BEMA, B-E-M-A podcast, and go buy the book, Asking Better Questions of the Bible, A Guide for the Wounded, Wary, and Longing for More. And Marty, they can also find you at martysolomon.com as well. And um, you've got some up, some trips coming up, maybe? Yes, I know you do. <laughs> I sure do. We're going to be releasing some orientations and some information and registration to start opening this summer. So 2024, we got three different trips headed out. So we'll see how it goes. Well, that's wow. great. We hope to be on your turkey trip. That's our uh, next little goal and to prepare. Good. We did not realize when we went to Israel how much we needed to prepare for that trip physically, Marty. So <laughs> we may start we may start a year ahead of time for the turkey trip. I don't know. <laughs> well that won't that won't that won't be too bad of an idea. Turkey won't be nearly as hard on you, but don't tell anybody that. That's our okay. secret. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> well Marty, it has been such a joy having you. Thank you so much for just gracing us with your time and your knowledge and your passion and zeal. And I love you talk about chutzpah. Uh, in the mm-hmm. podcast and that God <laughs> loves to partner with people with chutzpah. And you definitely are one of those people just getting to know with you and walk with you um, that has that. Um, well, I can't, I don't, how, how would you describe chutzpah? It, ooh, yeah. yeah. I, know. I now see why say. you just passed that on to me. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the guts. It's the, the guts. fire. The yes, the fire yeah. and the guts. Exactly. There are other things we can say, end but it we right don't. There. Exactly. We won't <laughs> say that. So thank you for your passion and your thank guts. Thank you, and, Marty. And again, we thank God for you. And God bless your ministry. And we hope to connect mm-hmm. with you again. Absolutely, you guys. It's been a joy being here. And just thanks for the time. For visuals and discussion questions for this podcast, sign up at knownministries.org. Because we learn better together, we'd love for you to share this podcast with others and gather to discuss it. If you take a moment to like, follow, subscribe, and rate this podcast, it'll help tremendously. We'd love to connect on social at Known Ministries. This podcast is made possible by engineer and producer Zachary Tate-Smith, executive producer Malia Smith, and generous donors. The information presented is for the enjoyment of all and is not intended as either medical advice or counseling, nor is it specific to any particular individual. It is not intended to replace counseling, medical care, or professional advice. Please contact 911 if you're having an emergency.